Joshua chapter 3. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing the river, uh, before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, When you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites and Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage, flood stage during, uh, all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathon, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah that is, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Okay, well, hello everybody. Uh, my name's Paul, in case you don't know. And uh, it's my privilege tonight to share a bit from that part of God's Word. But before I do that, uh, I want to tell you a bit of a story. One day, I found myself standing at Circular Quay. It was 11.58pm on New Year's Eve. Uh, It might be hard to imagine now, picture this if you can, tens of thousands of people packed around the foreshore, packed in, squashed in, shoulder to shoulder. Now, as you can imagine, the anticipation uh, was pretty rife in the air, very, very thick with anticipation, waiting to count down or count in the new year. It's something exhilarating, is it not? Is it it exhilarating to be part of a crowd, 
a crowd that's expectant and excited. Have you ever experienced something like that? Maybe it's been at a, a big concert where you've been part of the thousands of people waiting there expectantly for the, for the star to take the stage and the lights go down and there's a roar of anticipation. Perhaps you've been marching on your way to the stadium to watch your team play the grand final and there's great excitement to be part of this supporter army walking in to yell for your team. The thrill of being part of the crowd. Have you ever experienced something like that? Well, if you have, then maybe you can appreciate just a little bit the suspense from the chapter that we've just read. Did you notice the, sus the suspense, the anticipation in that chapter? Yes? Maybe no. Well, whether it's yes or no, we need to pray to God that he would help us to understand his word. So why don't we pray now that God would help us to understand his word. Let's pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you that you are a speaking God. Lord, if you had nothing to say to us, there would be no point in us being here. We thank you that your word has been recorded in the pages of scripture. These wonderful acts of power uh, that have dis uh, di displayed your mercy and grace to your people. And so, Lord, uh, we do pray that you would help us today to understand your word, to have minds to understand, but also to have hearts that are ready to obey as we're challenged from your word as we read it. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we will appreciate the suspense in this chapter once we appreciate how long it has taken us to get to this point in this chapter. For generations, a growing nation has been waiting and waiting to enter this promised land. The promise that God made to Abraham was made around 700 years before this point. And in that time, one family has grown into a nation of about three million people. Now that's a crowd. That's a crowd that's full of suspense. They are quite literally standing on the brink of seeing that foundational promise come true. And can you imagine the sight? This is not just a small tribe of people. This is three million people with all their stuff all their camping gear, all their wagons, their camels, their livestock. It would have been a complete circus, massive horde of people waiting, waiting to come into this land. Can you imagine the anticipation coming from that sort of crowd? And so verses 2 to 6 builds a suspense as we read about the officers moving through and giving instructions to break camp. They'd be following the ark into new territory, a place they'd never been before and they had to get themselves ready because God was going to do something wonderful but they're not told what it's going to be and then ceremonially the ark gets up and moves through the camp and the people follow. You can imagine it would have been a raucous crowd moving along behind the, the ark and the rumours would have been swirling would have been a fair few rumours I would expect within three, three million people. What's God going to do? 
We know we're heading towards the promised land, but we don't know how we're going to get there or what's going to happen. And then verses 11 to 14, we read about how they crossed the Jordan River. But then in verse 15, we're given a little bit more suspense. The writer sort of breaks the story in half and then writes directly to us, not to the Israelites, to you and I that just read that story, saying, oh, you do understand, by the way, that at this time of the year, the Jordan River is not just a babbling brook. It's a raging torrent in flood. It is humanly impossible to cross this barrier. And then we have verse 17. I've got verse 17 here on the screen for you. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Now we're at a bit of a disadvantage, especially those of us that have been coming to church for a while. We might just be a little bit familiar, maybe too familiar with this story, and we don't appreciate the excitement of that moment. We really should be sitting on the edge of our seat, waiting to see that spectacle happen. We might even go further, we might even be tempted to think that this is nothing more than a, a ripping yarn, a great legend or a mythical tale to amuse the kids before they go to bed at night. Now it might be like one of those programs you see on TV that have this sort of disclaimer, I've got this disclaimer on screen here for you. Disclaimer, the characters depicted in this program are entirely fictional and any resemblance to real-life people and places is, co is coincidental and unintended. But that is not the case in what we've just read from Joshua. It's important to remember that these events really did happen. They're not written as a myth. They're written as history. We can see that by the reading about eyewitnesses, by reading about dates and places. And then as if, if you had a chance to read on to chapter 4, the whole of that chapter is devoted to setting up a physical, historical memorial to remember this event. Beginning of chapter 4 here on screen. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. This whole account is deliberately historical. So a question we might have for us today is, great, okay, it's history. But what does it mean? What does it mean for you and me? What does God want to say to us through this event? Well, the great thing is that we don't have to dream that up. And it's actually right that we don't dream that up. God will tell us. And he tells us here in chapter 4, the very next chapter, goes on to explain what all this means. In particular, towards the end of chapter 4, verses 20 to 24. I've got it here on screen for us to read through. And Joshua set up at Gilgal those 12 stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future... When your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them this. Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God 
dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried up before us until we had crossed over. What does it all mean? God did it. The Lord saves and he did it. The Lord, your God, dried up the Jordan. He did it. Not them. It was his work, not theirs. When he promises to bring his people into the land of rest, into this land of promise, he does it by his majestic power. He keeps his promises. I'll say it again. He did it. And indeed, even if we go back all those 700 years, back to when he's standing there with Abraham and makes that promise, he initiates the promise. He starts the whole thing in process. And he fulfills his promise, even despite obstacles that we might think are just too huge to overcome, he still brings his people into the promised land. And so now we know what it means. We can sometimes come back and have a look at chapter 3 and actually read it and understand it more, more clearly. As we read through chapter 3, we see again and again that big idea coming out again and again. We see in every single verse that God did it. That's why the Ark of the Covenant is so prominent in that, in that chapter. You know the Ark of the Covenant, the big fancy box? But what was that box? Well, it was symbolic of God himself being amongst his people. That as the ark rose up and moved, it was actually God leading his people. The people were actually um, commanded to walk behind the ark. You saw this measurement cubits, probably means absolutely nothing. They were told to walk 900 metres behind the ark. And it's not because, simply because it's very holy and they had to stay away from it, that's true. But actually, it's almost demonstrating that God's going to go that far ahead of them. He will do it. He doesn't need to be pushed behind from the people. He will lead the way and he will do it. It's like as if God was rolling out the red carpet before his people and all they had to do was simply glide along it like the graceful actress on the red carpet, not even having to exert a bead of sweat So, what are we being told? That the majestic power of God works on the behalf of his people to save them. He exercises his might, his power to save his people. He did that. We didn't. And once we see that idea, we actually trace it all the way through scripture. And so, as Jesus sits with his disciples the day before his crucifixion, The exact same point is made. Have a look here on screen. Do not let your hearts be troubled, Jesus said. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. The risen Jesus is the one who prepares our place in heaven. He will come back to be with them and he will take them and lead them to heaven.
What part did the disciples play in that process? No part at all. In fact, the very next day they desert Jesus. So can you imagine? Can you imagine a couple of generations later, the Israelites standing there on the banks of the Jordan beside that memorial with their grandchild saying, God brought us across. He did it all. He did it in spite of my weakness. He did it at a time that seemed impossible. He did it in front of three million people. He did it unconditionally, unreservedly, undeservedly. He did it. He exercised his grace and brought us here into his promised rest. The majestic, sovereign might of his grace, his kindness, his goodness. What is there to say other than thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, for bringing us here? Now, it's possible, is it not, to get into that habit of thinking that somehow we're doing God a favour, signing up to his cause. Do you sometimes think like that? To think that, uh, well, God would be very pleased with me today, coming to church with such incredible weather outside. I've come here to help him. I've given some money. That'll go, that'll go well. You know, sometimes it's possible to get into that awful frame of mind to think that somehow I have contributed to gaining my place in heaven. That there's something about me that compelled God to do what he did, that compelled him to make that promise. What are we learning here? God did it. Nothing to do with us. Not with any help from you or me. It's by his grace he took the initiative. It is entirely all his work. So in one way, it's a very simple key point. That's the key point. God did it. And there's actually two applications from the passage. You find them right at the very end of chapter 4. An application to people who don't know God and an application to those who do. I've got it here on the screen for you here. Chapter 4, verse 24. Why did he do this? Well, he did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful directed to all the peoples of the earth. Now, at that time we're talking, we're referring to non-Israelites and if that means you're a non-Israelite, well, you're actually out of relationship with God. You don't know him. This is people who are distant from God. This is a message to the sceptic, to the one who doubts, to the person in Canaan who doesn't trust God, that worships other gods. They had to see that the Israelite God is the living God, the one who rescues his people by his power. He does what no other power could possibly do. He does what no other religion has ever promised to do. He secures a certain future for his people by his grace and mercy. He makes promises, this God, and he keeps them. When he says he'll do it, he does it. This is the God of mighty power. And so it's saying, look at the crossing of the Red Sea. Look at the crossing of the Jordan. 
Look at the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the living God who works in mighty power. Look at him and stand in wonder. Now I wonder what the Canaanite people, where they thought power was found. I wonder where the Canaanite people thought security could be found. Would they have looked to education? Would they have looked to the development of technology? Would they have thought that a certain future is found uh, in economic security and comfort there? Would they think that a certain future and security is found in politics? Perhaps an annual G7 meeting with all the ites, the Perizzites, Jebusites, Vegemites, everyone else. Annual G7 meeting. Maybe perhaps power and security lay there. But as word spread among the nations of Canaan, can you imagine what was beginning to dawn in their minds? The Lord Yahweh has dried up the Jordan. Can you imagine this impending sense of judgment? The application to those who ignore God is clear. The living God is mighty in power. And so... Stop worshipping false gods. There's only one source of power. Can your money save you from death? Can your technology get you to heaven? Can your technology do what a living God can do? Coming forward to today, listen to another reading from the Bible that warns people like us today, here on the screen. Therefore, Since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he would judge the world by justice, by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. There's the... There's the challenge. The application to the non-believer is, well, start believing. There is a true and powerful God that you need to bow the knee to. But what about that second application I mentioned? Let's have a look again at chapter 4, verse 24 on the screen. What did God do? God did this so that all the peoples of all the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And this. And so that you, God's people, might always fear the Lord your God. Now what's that mean? What does the fear God? The fear of the Lord is to know your place before God. A respectful, reverent awe, an admiration towards God, the God who makes and keeps promises. It's understanding this, we say this often here, it's understanding that he is God and you are not. That's its understanding. It's also realising just how crazy it is to willfully go up against this God. It should only take us a second to understand that. This God can block a flooded river. He can part the Red Sea. He can raise the dead. He can create the whole universe with a word. He's more powerful than we can ever possibly imagine. 
And this verse is reminding us that going up against this God, well, quite frankly, that's terrifying. And if you're not terrified at disobeying God, well, then you don't know who you're up against. Respect and awe for the true and living God is the right way to live. But of course, we can see the character and actions of this true and living God and our fear or respect, well, actually that leads us to draw nearer to him because he's full of grace and mercy. Our reverence for him leads us to trust him all the more deeply. It will drive us to hold on to his word all the more tightly. You know, in closing, sometimes the disciples really nailed it in their understanding of Jesus. One day after some hard teaching, many people turned away and stopped following Jesus. And Jesus turned to his 12 disciples and he said this here on screen. You, don't, you do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. May it be for us too that we would always fear the Lord, that we would always follow the one who can lead us into eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you lead your people, you led your people across the Jordan so that all the peoples of the earth might know that your hand is powerful and so that we might always fear you. But we pray that you would help us to see where you have been at work in our lives and in the lives of others. Help us to be able to see that and to praise your name and to walk closely with you in all that we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.